Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 46, Richard and the Road to Outremer. It feels absolutely ages since I was here last, so I had a real trouble remembering actually where we were. But anyway, welcome to 2012 and another 50 episodes of the History of England. I thought maybe we could have a sweepstake about where I should end up at the end of 2012. In 2011, I did just about 700 years in 45 episodes, so roughly 15 years an episode. But with Richard, I think we're down to one and a half years per episode. So on that basis, Lord knows where we'll be. But it does suggest that the sun will have turned dark and hell will have frozen over before I get to 1901 and flop over the line. Anyway, to start off the new year, first of all, my thanks to three new donators over the break, to George... Chad and Brian, thanks very much indeed for your donations. I really appreciate it. And thanks also, of course, to Rob for setting up the Great British Coin giveaway. It was just fantastic for me to see all those comments and ideas, advice and questions. It was really a thrill. So without wanting to be needy or flaky, obviously, it can be a bit lonely podcasting. So any comment, even if it's a quick, how's your father or still listening, is great. I'm particularly conscious of a helpful comment by um, Vampire Red, hello Vampire, that I'm going too fast just so that I can get over the agonies of doing the recording, which is actually a fair point. So this is a good point that my mother would definitely agree with. So from now on, we are imitating the pace of a snail. As always, I really enjoyed the questions and there were a couple of them in particular that I thought I could just try and answer here and now. Nick asked about the various aristocratic titles. And this gives me a good reminder to be a bit clearer about my nomenclature. The long and short is that by the end of the Angevin period, we've not yet arrived at a finished hierarchy of different terms, and things are reasonably simple. At least they are if we concentrate on England. Basically, you have a king and a few earls. The earls are no longer the purely public office of Anglo-Saxon times, which were known, as you'll remember, as aldermen, and where there was one alderman for each shire. The number of earls in Angevin times is pretty random. I think from memory, seven earls is the largest number we've had at any one time since 1066. Another word I'm using is baron, and I'm using this, I confess, rather loosely, to denote a noble who holds land directly from the king, i.e. a tenant-in-chief. At this stage, it's not a formal title or an office. I'm sorry to say that I've also used the term magnate. This again is not a formal term, but I use it when I want to talk about the real big boys, the head of the top 30 or so aristocratic families that really, really call the shots with the king. Now, if we include France, of course, life does get a bit more complicated. Guys like Charlemagne were very grand, but essentially, just like all the other warrior kings of the earlier Middle Ages, they were surrounded by a bunch of powerful landed men, who they described as their companions, or comes in Latin. 
Now the word comes gets translated into count. In order to rule effectively, these guys gave out territories to various counts, like Normandy to Rollo, for example. But then the Norman counts get ideas above their station. They want to show they're more important than your average count. So they looked back to Roman precedents, and they called themselves ducks, or duke. At this stage, there's really no formal difference between a duke or a count. The former just has a bigger ego. And finally, just as in England each shire has a sheriff, in France there are people called vicomtes who perform the same kind of function. But unlike in England, the king loses control over the office and it becomes hereditary. So there's a whole load of second division nobles who start to arrogate the term vicomte or viscount to themselves. So there you go, that's roughly the French hierarchy. King, duke, count and vicomte. I suspect that's as clear as mud, but you can let me know. Then there was a really interesting question from Chris about borders. I.e. how would you know that you'd just passed from, say, the Ile de France into Normandy, or from Mercia into Northumbria. The really interesting point this raises is that we're used to hard and fast borders, and this hasn't actually been the case until comparatively recently. So a border might have been quite tightly defined. So the Humber, for example, was the border between Mercia and Northumbria, and that was nice and clear. But it might also be really vague, and as much dependent on what king a particular border lord gave his allegiance to this week as anything else. The borders of England and Scotland, for example, go up and down like a yo-yo, and they aren't finalised until the 16th century. OK, so once again, thanks for all the questions. But now, on with the history. Where are we exactly? It's October 1190. We'd left the most puissant King of England, Duke of Normandy, Duke of Aquitaine, chucking mud at some southern Italian peasants he'd irritated, before scrambling over to Sicily to meet with the rest of his crusader fleet. Sicily is actually a rather fascinating place at this point, well worth a good series of podcasts for anyone. Well worth a good series of podcasts for anyone out there with a hunger for it. It was the most cosmopolitan of islands, standing at the crossroads of the Mediterranean with a population of Greek, Italian, Christian and Muslim. Those goats had not yet done their work, so the island was still green and fertile, still the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. The state of Sicily was not restricted to the island. It consisted of a very large part of Italy as well, maybe as much as a third. The county of Sicily had been conquered by the Normans, of all people, in the late 11th century. And the state had been set up in 1130 by a Norman called Roger. Sicily was a significant player on the European stage, so much so that Henry II had married one of his daughters, Joan, to the then King William. William had sadly died, and his throne had been usurped by a chap called Tancred. So the Sicily stop was important for Richard, to prepare his army, to sort out his future, but also to iron out a few family problems. Now as far as the army was concerned, he had them spend some time preparing his engines of war for the Holy Land. For the rest, he had a big conversation to have with both Philip and with Tancred. Philip of France, meanwhile, was already in Messina, Sicily, and had slipped in in a modest, self-effacing kind of way, so that nobody would know or be upset. Roger of Hoveden describes the Lionheart approach. He arrived with many buses and other great ships and galleys, in such magnificence and to such noise of trumpets and clarions, that a tremor ran through all who were in the city. So much for subtlety and modesty then, but then subtlety and modesty were never Richard's longest suits. Richard had arrived, and didn't everyone know it? 
There were waves, gentle listener, there were waves. For starters, Richard's whole bombastic I'm the greatest ruler in Christendom thing got right up Philip's nose and wriggled about. After all, wasn't he just the vassal of the King of France? Where did precedence come in here? It was bad enough that compared to the Angevin army, Philip's wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple, without having the whole thing shoved in your face. And Richard was without doubt an in-your-face kind of guy. Philip was so hacked off that he actually tried to just leave straight away, despite the fact that he and Richard had a meeting booked in the diary. And off he sailed with his fleet, feeling self-righteous and satisfied that he'd demonstrated his independence and superiority. Which made it even more irritating that the wind changed and the fleet was forced back to harbour. Philip was not a man to simply bear a grudge. He was a king who'd made a career out of nursing, feeding and carefully husbanding his grudges, and he was developing the mother of all grudges against Richard the Blessed Lionheart. Once ashore, Richard immediately set about debating with the Norman ruler of Sicily, Tancred, because he wasn't happy about Tancred's treatment of his sister Joan. Seizing the throne from the rightful heir Constance was one thing, that was part of life's cut and thrust as far as Richard was concerned, but Tancred had also not returned to Joan her wedding portion or dower when William died, as he should have done. And messing with the family, well, that was out of order. Meanwhile, Tancred and the Messenians were more than a little nervous about the whole let's play host to a horde of hairy crusaders thing. Hairy crusaders tended to be at the muscular end of the Christian spectrum. Hairy crusaders had a habit of doing a bit of rape, pillage and conquest on the way. Hairy crusaders needed feeding, and there were a lot of them in a very small area. The whole thing then was more tense than a family reunion over Christmas and it ended in tears with a running battle in the streets of Messina. But that is as far as it went. Richard wanted to get to the Holy Land and he genuinely had no desire to cause trouble. On this occasion, trouble had rather come knocking on his door rather than the other way round. So he sorted it out. He struck an agreement with Tancred. Tancred agreed to give Joan 40,000 ounces of gold. And he also agreed that one of his daughters would marry Arthur, Richard's three-year-old nephew. Now this is important, so listen up. Arthur of Brittany is the son of Geoffrey, Count of Brittany, Richard's dead brother, and of his wife, Constance of Brittany. Now at the same time, Richard designated Arthur the heir to all the Angevin lands and fortune, i.e. not to his brother John. Back home in England, John would not have been a happy bunny. But in Sicily, things were all smiles and happiness. Richard built a wooden castle outside Messina called Matigriffon, where he could keep an eye on his men and create food stores so that the local Greek population should not be hammered too hard. He made his men give back any local plunder, and he made sure discipline stuck. One ever so slight fly in the ointment might have been that Matigriffon apparently means something like death to the Greeks, which seems just a bit provocative. Meanwhile, Philip was getting ever more grumpy. It didn't help that Richard invited him over to Matter Griffin for Christmas and everyone marvelled at the splendour of the gold and silver plate and the variety of meat and drink. And it really didn't help that Eleanor of Aquitaine and Berengaria of Navarre were now due to arrive at Sicily. Philip was no idiot and he knew this was trouble. Just to remind you all after this three-week gap, Richard had been betrothed to Philip's sister Alice for 20 years now with no sign of the marriage taking place. And Philip must have been aware of the rumours that Richard was now cosying up with the Navarrese. So Philip did what he did best. He stirred things up. 
fanning Tancred's fears that Richard was here to take Sicily away from him. And for a while Tancred refused to let Berengaria land, but Richard talked it through with him and he cleared the air. They exchanged gifts to express the reconfirmation of their friendship, and Richard's gift, interesting enough, was Excalibur, the famous sword of the legendary King Arthur. Having cleared the air, Tancred was now back on Richard's side, and having confessed to listening to Philip's little tales, this particular threesome got a bit warm for Philip, and Richard took full advantage. He finally fessed up to the fact that he had absolutely no intention whatsoever of marrying Alice that he had plenty of evidence that his father had made the girl his mistress and that she had had a child by him. And therefore, how could he be expected to go through the marriage with somebody who had had his father's bastard? Philip now had no choice. He had to back down and save his sister's honour. He agreed that Richard should be released for a face-saving payment of 10,000 marks. And they agreed a few other things as well. The disputed Gisor and Vexar was going to belong to Richard and his male heirs but then revert to Philip if Richard didn't have any heirs. This Treaty of Messina was a humiliation for Philip, and make no mistake. He showed his feelings by setting sail as quickly as he could, before Eleanor and Berengaria arrived. I suspect that Philip always hated Richard and the Angevins, though I'm simply wildly speculating in the most unhistorical kind of way. He and Richard are chalk and cheese, really. Apart from a shared sense of ambition, Richard is bluff, open, in-your-face, bombastic, charming and upfront. Philip is sneaky, a backroom operator, untrustworthy and ungenerous, jealous of his privilege. There's the famous story of Philip about how he was chewing on his hazel stick when a lad, thinking of how to restore France to its former glories. But whether the two of them have got on or not, the gloves are now definitely off. Forget the Holy Land, Saladin, saving Christendom, all that kind of stuff. Philip was out to get Richard. Alice, by the way, did finally get married a few years later to a bloke called William Talvis, the Count of Pontieu, and she had two daughters, dying around 1220. History doesn't record if this is a she-lived-happily-ever-after situation, but at least she'd found a way out of her rather exposed and difficult situation. As always in these times, it's more than a bit difficult to know what Berengaria and Richard's feelings towards each other's were. Chroniclers are notably less than glowing about the lass, and certainly it doesn't become one of the great romantic relationships. And of course there are no children. But equally, there's not a hint of antagonism. You get the impression she was a nice enough woman, sensible, undemonstrative and unambitious, quite happy to play her allotted role. And that she and Richard got on well enough, but without ever lighting the blue touch paper. The wedding, however, was going to have to wait, because it was now Lent. Everyone in Richard's army was, however, sick of waiting. They'd built more siege engines that you could shake a stick at, and they wanted to be off. And so, on the 10th of April, 1191, Richard's by now huge fleet of 200 ships set off. A combined army and navy of probably in the region of 17,000 men. The other major event about Richard's journey to Outremer was what happened at Cyprus, and actually it's one of his big legacies as well. It's quite likely that he always intended the fleet to rendezvous there, but whatever the truth, events conspired to make this his next destination. Because, of course, almost inevitably, the fleet gets split up in a storm, and some of the ships were driven ashore at Limassol in southern Cyprus, and they were captured and imprisoned by the local population, and their possessions taken off them. Some others of the lost part of the fleet hove in the sea outside Limassol, and amongst them were Joan and Berengaria, so Richard set sail for Cyprus rather than for Acre. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The background of Cyprus is also quite interesting. It had been a stronghold of the Roman Empire for centuries until invaded by the Arabs in 688. And at this point, it had become part of a unique joint rule between the parties arranged by Justinian and the Caliph. But then in 968, a resurgent Byzantine empire had restored the island to sole Byzantine rule. But by the time Richard was sailing towards it, it had become independent, under the rule of again a quite interesting chap called Isaac Comnenus. Isaac had been a minor member of the ruling Comnenus family, described as an irascible and violent man, with a string of cruelties attributed to his name. He'd had the misfortune earlier in his career to be captured by the Armenians in an area of southern Anatolia or modern-day Turkey that was called Cilicia. Nobody seems to have given a tinker's curse about the poor guy, but eventually, after five years, two members of the nobility had finally persuaded the emperor to pay the ransom, offering to stand surety for his loyalty. So the emperor opened his purse. But Isaac, meanwhile, had had enough of imperial service. So instead of going back to Constantinople, he gathered a group of adventurers and mercenaries, tricked his way onto the island of Cyprus and began to rule it independently of the empire, supported by the kingdom of Sicily. The two nobles I mentioned, who'd stood surety for Isaac, were consequently impaled in front of the emperor's palace in Constantinople for their bad advice. How they must have laughed at the irony of it all. And while Richard sailed from Rhodes to Cyprus, Isaac was preparing. He could see that the small part of Richard's fleet that had ended up at Cyprus wasn't going away. So he didn't have to be a genius to know that more trouble could well be on the way. So he stripped Limassol bare and used everything he had to barricade the town against a landing from the sea. And by all accounts, he felt he had things pretty well covered. Since when Richard sent his envoy to demand his people's possessions back, he sent him away with a flea in his ear. This was to prove a mistake. An understandable mistake. Isaac had some justice for thinking that landing a force in the face of armed resistance wouldn't be easy. But look, this is Richard the Lionheart we're dealing with here. Richard led the charge up the beach against a hail of arrows and crossbow bolts. And after some fierce fighting, the Cypriots and Greeks ran away. And Limassol belonged to Richard. Accounts differ as to what happened the next day. One account has Richard taking Isaac's camp by surprise and putting them to flight. The other has Richard attacking with 50 mounted knights, but whichever account you believe, there are a few consistencies. Number one, Richard wins this battle in the face of a much bigger army. Number two, Richard is living up to his reputation of enjoying a good fight. In either story, he's there in the thick of it. In one of them, a clerk advises Richard to retreat because there are so many Greeks. Richard's reply was brusque. Sir Clark, get on with your writing. Forget about fighting and leave the chivalry to us. Which seems like justified advice in view of the result. And number three, Isaac is surprised, defeated and loses his camp and his vast store of treasure. By the 11th of May, Isaac was losing supporters fast and he decided to sue for peace. Shortly afterwards, he did indeed return all the hostages and swear allegiance to Richard and in return, Richard sent back some of the plunder he'd taken during the fighting. But despite all of this, it was pretty clear that Isaac was simply buying himself a bit of time, which became even clearer when Richard found that he'd legged it for the interior and was trying to get another army together. 
While all this was going on, some other folk had arrived in Limassol on the 11th of May, namely Guy de Lusignan, the King of Jerusalem. Now I've got a bit of a problem with my narrative here. I've no doubt you've thrown your hands up in horror. What's the King of Jerusalem doing here? What's going on in Outremer? Why on earth are we messing around in Limassol when we could be in the Holy Land? I'm sorry about that. All will be explained next week. But for the moment, you're just going to have to accept the bare facts. Guy de Lusignan was being challenged for the role of leader of the Franks in Outremer by a bloke called Conrad of Montferrat. And Conrad was being supported by Philip of France. Now you'll recognise the Lusignan name from the noble family from Poitou in Aquitaine, of course. So you'll also guess that Richard cannot help but feel that Guy's family should be under his protection. And he should therefore support them, rather than Conrad of Montferrat. Of course, Richard also knew that it would infuriate Philip if he did support Guy. So all in all, not a difficult choice then. Guy it would be. It's very likely that Richard was rather pleased that Isaac was planning for war because it gave him the excuse he needed for more war and more conquest. But before war and conquest, he had some unfinished business and on the 12th of May, Berengaria and Richard were married in the chapel of St George in Limassol and the Bishop of Evera then crowned her Queen of England. And then Richard got on with the business of reducing Cyprus. Part of his army and St Gallus he gave to Guy de Lusignan and sent him round the island one way while he went round the other way, reducing coastal towns as they went. And then they struck into the centre and despite an ambush from Isaac, they captured Nicosia. Everything was going pear-shaped for Isaac as the locals voted on his rule with their fleet, flocking to submit to Richard. But as it happens, Isaac was probably still feeling reasonably chilled about the whole thing. Because he had a plan, and actually it was a pretty good one, to retreat into the interior and sit it out in one of his most impregnable castles. Because at some point, Richard is going to have to go to Outremer. Now, Cyprus is about the size of East Anglia, but anyone looking to hold out in the interior of East Anglia is likely to be very disappointed. But Cyprus, rather than being as fat as a pancake, has a mountainous interior. Hop along to the website at thehistoryofengland.com and you'll see a couple of photos of the castles such as Cantara, St Hilarion and Buffavento. And you'd be reasonably comfortable that you could hold out there for as long as it takes. Isaac's thinking was that all he had to do was hold out for long enough, Richard would eventually have to leave Fereca. And in fact, Philip's representatives had arrived on the island and were indeed nagging Richard to get on with it. But then Richard had a stroke of luck. While Richard lay ill at Nicosia, Guy captured the strongest coastal castle at Cyrenia, and with it not just the treasury, but also Isaac's daughter. The daughter's name is unrecorded, but while Isaac may have been a violent, angry man and ruler, it was clearly something of a softy where his daughter was concerned. Isaac capitulated suddenly and completely. His only terms were that he should not be put in iron chains. Richard agreed with this and was true to his word. He put Isaac in silver chains instead. How Isaac must have laughed. Richard wasn't quite home and dry. He had to put down a rebellion before the deed was completed, but now he reaped the rewards of his conquest, imposing a 50% tax on the inhabitants. But as it happens, this was as far as his ambitions ran. Richard didn't plan to extend the Angevin Empire to include Cyprus, and indeed the thought of trying to hold on to an island at the eastern end of the Mediterranean from England would probably have made any military man shudder. But Richard did have the wit to understand how important it could be, and sold it to the Templars for a hundred thousand peasants. 
Sadly, I have absolutely no idea of how much a bezant is worth, but 100,000 is an awful lot of them, so I'm assuming it was a reasonable deal. The deal was to cause problems later between Philip and Richard. The deal they'd struck was that they'd share all the plunder on crusade. So was this included, or was this not included? Now, Richard's argument was that the deal applied only to the Holy Land, and that Cyprus was just an adventure on the way. Philip saw it differently, unsurprisingly. So here's another bone of contention then. It's questionable as to whether or not Richard had planned to take control of Cyprus, or whether it just happened that way. John Gillingham, Richard's great supporter, would have us believe that he planned it, but he himself has to admit that Richard's own letter home gave no hint of it. And here's a little bit of it. As we were continuing our pilgrimage journey, we turned to Cyprus, where we hoped to find the refuge of those of our number who had been shipwrecked. Gillingham's point is that he's trying to make it sound like an adventure so that he doesn't have to give up his treasure. And my opinion counts nothing next to Gillingham's, but to me the whole adventure has the feel of something that Richard fell into. But something where he also had the wit and the talent to understand and grasp the opportunity it presented. Because the capture of Cyprus was to prove of enormous and long-lasting value to Outremer, who was easily defended, but it was close enough to Outremer to provide support and resources. Anyway, on the 5th of June, 1191, Richard and his fleet set sail from Famagusta for the Holy Land at last. Now, I think it'd be really useful to get a map of Outremer in our heads. So we'll do that this week and talk a bit about the political geography of the states. And then next week, we can talk a bit about the recent history of Outremer before launching into the Third Crusade itself the week after. How does that sound? So, the First Crusade had established four main Crusader states. There are, of course, maps on the website, thehistoryofengland.com, but for those of you who don't want to go there, let me try to describe it for you. So imagine the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, what is now Israel, Gaza, Lebanon and Syria. In the north, you have the city and principality of Antioch. Facing Antioch on its borders is the Islamic city of Aleppo, which for more than half a century is on the front line of the struggle between Islam and Outremer. Then go inland and you have the county of Edessa, which straddled the Euphrates River. Going south down the coast, you have the smallest of the states, the county of Tripoli. And finally, you have the Kingdom of Jerusalem. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, at its greatest extent, stretched all the way down to the Red Sea. On the coast, it stretched from Beirut in the north to Ascalon and Gaza in the south. It extended beyond the River Jordan and the Dead Sea, with that area being called Outre-Jordain. The main frontier region was the north of the kingdom and opposite Tripoli, with the great city of Damascus and the frontier fortress of Banyas. The political geography was really complex and contributed a lot to both the survival of the states and to their demise in the 12th century. So look, in the past I've always tended to think of Outremer as surrounded by an Islamic state determined to rub it off the map. And there is no doubt that the Islamic world did want to rub the states out. But for most of the 12th century, we're talking about a series of very separate states. The Seljuk states in the north, in Anatolia, mainly threatened Byzantium. Islamic states centred in Aleppo and Damascus faced the Crusaders, and even in Saladin's time, the power and autonomy of the local rulers, the emirs, was very considerable. And finally, in the south, is Egypt, once the great centre of the Fatimid Caliphate, but now close to its last legs. The political geography of the Christian states was almost as complicated. The big power in the region remained the Byzantine Empire. 
Now, I have again suffered from the perspective of history that sees the empire in terminal decline, a shadow of its former self and no longer a force in the world. But for most of the 12th century, the Byzantine Empire is still the big beast. Its armies are respected and feared. It is in this period that this finally begins to slip, but it's without doubt the leading Christian power dominating much of Anatolia, i.e. think modern Turkey. However, during the 12th century, Christian Armenian states in the south of Anatolia in Cilicia, which sits on the northern borders of Antioch, do begin to win some independence from Byzantium. And then finally, there's the politics within the Crusader states themselves. Nominally, they all owe allegiance to the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but in practice they largely rule themselves. But by and large, when danger threatens, they do try at least to work together. Time and again, the King of Jerusalem gathers all the barons and levies of Outremer to either attack the Islamic states or defend against attack, sometimes to the extent of attacking as far abroad as Egypt. By the time Richard arrived, we're into the second and third generation of inhabitants of the Christian states, and the new arrivals were constantly shocked by what they found. To the new arrival, the Christians appeared to have gone native, to have been sullied by the touch of Islam. The local crusaders spoke a strange dialect of French. Their lives were full of luxuries that were common in the East and wildly unfamiliar in the West. The barons lived in larger and more splendid houses and palaces. There were carpets and damask wall hangings. The Roman sewerage systems were still in place and still worked perfectly. The settlers often wore local dress, given the climate. So, for example, a silk robe and a turban. Even more troublesome to the newcomers was the level of interaction between the Christians and the Muslims. To the Westerners, this was a war between conflicting worldviews. The local settler needed to get on and deal with the Muslim states. So there was trade and discussion between them. Christian states frequently made alliances with Islamic ones, driven by the need to keep the Islamic states divided. There's a story from one of the Islamic chroniclers called Usama. Usama was praying in the direction of Mecca. A Templar, just arrived from Europe, caught Usama, and Usama describes how the Templar's face changed colour and body trembled at the sight. Usama was grabbed and forced to turn to the east and could have been attacked, but the local Templars pulled him off and apologised to Usama, explaining that he was a newcomer and didn't know their ways. Don't get me wrong, it's clear that there's plenty of contempt, fear and ignorance going on. The Muslims thought the Franks were barbarians, and the Franks behaved indeed with great barbarity in their struggle to survive and could never relax. But it's a complex, shifting situation. Even the local Christian population, who'd lived under Muslim rule for centuries, were by no means unequivocal in their support for the Westerners, and the Jews in particular greatly preferred Islamic rule. OK, so I think that's enough for next week. We'll have much more on the fall of Jerusalem next. One final thing, though. I'm in a bit of a mess over my nomenclature. So you're going to hear Christian, Frank and Crusader as completely interchangeable terms. And sadly, you're going to hear Muslim and Saracen, on the other hand, as completely interchangeable terms. Just so you know. OK, so next week we'll spend a bit more time looking at the military and political events that led to the Third Crusade, i.e. the fall of Jerusalem. And then the week after, we'll get on with Richard and his couple of years in the Holy Land. Until then, everybody, good luck, thanks for listening, and have a really great week.